I was a kid, I loved going to my grandma and grandpa's house. Uh, they lived in Petaluma over by uh, Santa Rosa. And once or maybe twice a year, we would visit them from our home up in the Pacific Northwest. And I loved being with grandma and grandpa. And I loved doing things at their house. There are things that I look forward to doing every time we were there. Like I loved having raspberries on my cereal with grandpa in the morning. My grandpa loved raspberries. He had a bunch of raspberry bushes. And he would uh, freeze individual portions of raspberries in small styrofoam containers in his freezer. And every night before he went to bed, he would take one out so it would be thawed for him to have on his cereal the next morning. And when I was there, he would take one out for me too so I could have raspberries on my cereal with Grandpa in the morning. I loved it. I also looked forward to, uh, to uh, hiking up the hill behind Grandma and Grandpa's house. There were these giant, gnarly oak trees on the top of the hill. They were so fun to climb on and climb around in. Uh, I, I loved swinging on the swing that was on the walnut tree in my grandparents' backyard. And I looked forward to watching The Price is Right with my grandma in the mornings. Uh, I, she would always switch to soap opera after that, which I didn't enjoy, but Price of Right I really liked. And I enjoyed playing Parcheesi with my grandma. And I enjoyed helping my grandpa in the yard, or at least being near him while he did stuff in the yard. I, I just, I loved it. Their house was a special place to me. Their house was a special place. And there are other places, even as an adult, that are special to me. Uh, several times over the last dozen or so years, our family has rented a beach house from friends of a friend uh, up near Brookings, Oregon. And there's activities that have become traditions that I look forward to doing every time we go there, uh, like, um, like making dribbly sandcastles on the beach and walking on the beach and exploring the tide pools that are there and having campfires on the beach, which always includes making s'mores. And there's nothing like sand in your marshmallows to really give you that authentic beach s'more experience. I look forward to watching the sunsets at the beach, either right down on the beach around the campfire or up at the house on the deck. And I just look forward to lots of very slow time playing games, drinking coffee, just watching the waves. That beach house has become a special place to me. I bet that there are places that are special to you as well. And I want you to take a minute to talk about those with the person next to you. So I'm going to encourage you to take a minute just to ask Talk about these questions. What are or have been some special places for you? What makes or made it special? And what do you or did you look forward to doing there? So take a minute right now and have that conversation with the people around you. All right, let, let's come back together. And I would just love to hear, without a lot of detail, just uh, what were some of the places that were, that were special? Pinecrest. Tahoe. Pinecrest. Kennedy Meadows. Kennedy Meadows. All right, lots of... Cambria, Brookings, Oregon, yeah, all these places for different reasons are special to us. There's things that we enjoy doing when we're there. You know, as we've been looking at the book of Exodus over these past few weeks, we've been looking at a place that was very special for God's people, for the Israelites. It was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this portable place of worship that God had instructed the people to build, and the tabernacle was a beautiful space. It had lots of gold that was involved in the construction of it and other precious metals and other expensive materials. It was an impressive structure, especially considering that it was disassembled and moved and reassembled on a regular basis. 
there were finely crafted ornate furnishings in the tabernacle. It was beautiful and it was impressive, but what truly made the tabernacle a special place was that the presence of God was there. The presence of God that we've seen referenced so many times in the book of Exodus. The presence of God that was the fire in the burning bush that Moses saw, that, that led the people in the, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The presence of God that descended on Mount Sinai with earthquakes and lightnings and thunder and smoke and fire. That presence of God was in the tabernacle and that's what made it special. The point of the tabernacle was the presence of God. And because God was present there, there are some things that were true of the tabernacle and that shaped the expectations of Moses and the priests and the people regarding the tabernacle and what they expected to happen there. There, there were some descriptions that were true of the tabernacle because that's where God was. And we've been talking over these past few weeks about the tabernacle back then in the Old Testament and we've been uh, noting that it matters for us to know what the tabernacle was and, and how it operated because we are tabernacles of God's presence as well. The New Testament says that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. That's true for each of us individually, if you put your faith in Jesus, and it's true for us corporately as a church. We are the place of God's presence. You are the place of God's presence. We together are the place of God's presence. And because God is with us, because God is present in us, there are some things that are true of us, some descriptions that are true of us that should shape our expectations of the kind of people we're going to become and the kind of church we're going to become. That's what we're going to, uh, that's what we're going to see as we look at the tabernacle today and especially look at the most holy place in the tabernacle. I want to uh, take a minute to view a video that will show us what the whole tabernacle, including the holy place, might have looked like. And what we saw there in the, that inner chamber of the most holy place, that was a space that was 15 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet tall. And as that video showed, the only thing that was there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, uh, we're going to uh, hear the passages read that describe the Ark of the Covenant. And to help me with that, I want to invite Ethan Craig and um, Irie and Erilyn Warren to come on up. Come on up, guys. And would you all stand and follow along as they read these verses for us? Oh. There we go. Go ahead, Ethan. Lead us off. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this taller tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make an ark of Akkadic wood two and a half cubits long and two and a half cubits wide and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold both sides, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four rings of gold for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of Akkadiac wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain on in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then pull it, put in the ark the table of the covenant law which I will give you. Make an 
a tournament cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim, cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherub of one piece with the cover. At the two ends, the cherubim have to the cherubim to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are faced to look towards the top, towards the cover. Place the cover top on the ark and put the ark tablets of the covenant law, covenant law that I will give you. There are there above the cover between two cherubim that are over the ark covenant law. I will meet with you and give you my commands for the Israelites. Awesome. Thank you guys very much. Lord, we thank you for your word and for what you want to speak to us through your word by your spirit today. We just say yes to that. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see you more clearly. Open our ears and our minds to hear and understand all you want to say to us. And quicken our hearts to make the responses you want us to make to you today. In your name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so the Ark of the Covenant was a box or a chest. That's what the word ark means. It was about 45 inches long, about 27 inches high, and 27 inches across. And it was made, as you heard there, of that acacia wood that was overlaid with gold. In the ark were the tablets of the covenant law, which we find out later were stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments inscribed on them. And then on top of the ark was a lid made of pure gold. And on top of that, actually part of that cover, that lid was called the, atone, the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And as a part of that were two cherubim, and it was there between the wings of those cherubim that God was present in a special way with his people. And because God was present there in the most holy place, there were some things that were true of that space, some descriptions that were true of that, of that space. These actually were descriptions that were true of the whole tabernacle. They're descriptions that are meant to be true of us individually and of us as a church. There's three of those descriptions I want to highlight this morning. They're referenced in the verses we just read. The first is, is that because God is with us, we are a holy place. We are a holy place. That space was called the most holy place. That wasn't just a, a title for it. That was an accurate description of what it was. This, and that did describe the whole tabernacle. In verse 8 of Exodus 25, God says to Moses, Have the people build me a sanctuary. The word sanctuary in Hebrew comes from the same root as holy. It was literally a holy place. What made it holy? What did it mean that it was holy? Well, we've, we've talked in these last few weeks about how a big part of the idea of holiness is being consecrated or set apart. God is holy and that he is set apart from sin. A, a person or a place is holy when it's set apart to God and set apart for his purposes. And that was true of the tabernacle. It was set apart for God's work. That's what um, made these uh, just normal patches of ground in the wilderness become places where God's presence was is because they were set apart to him and to his worship, set apart for the tabernacle. And the most holy place in particular was set apart for God's presence. We've seen how much it matters that we are consecrated and set apart to God, that, that our whole lives are devoted to him, that every part of who we are is devoted to him. 
uh, we're, we're set apart. This, this, is, um, this is a big part of what it means to be holy. Our wills matter when it comes to holiness. The decisions we make, the choices we make matter to set ourselves apart to be holy. Our will matters when it comes to our holiness, but our will by itself is not enough to truly make us holy. It's involved, it's necessary, but it's not all that it takes. Holiness requires the presence of God. For the people of Israel, when they were going from place to place in the wilderness, God's presence would lead them as a pillar of cloud, and it would stop over the place where he wanted them to camp, and the priest would set up the tabernacle, and then God's presence would descend and fill the most holy place. And that's when that structure became a sanctuary. That's when that ground became holy ground. It's when God filled the tabernacle. The space was set apart to him, and then it was filled with him. And that's when it became holy. It takes God's presence to make something truly holy. This is good for us to think about ourselves. It's good that we set apart our lives to God, but has your life been filled with God? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit of God? That's, that's a phrase that biblical authors use in different ways when they, when they, when they use it. Uh, when Paul uses that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, he talks about it as something that happens at the moment of salvation, as God takes up residence in our lives. And we're to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit, so we stay under his direction and under his influence. The Holy Spirit's in us as a deposit guaranteeing what we'll experience someday fully in eternity. And that matters. That's important. It matters that we are full of the Holy Spirit and remain full. But when Luke talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, he uses it slightly differently. He uses it interchangeably with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit coming upon people in power. When Luke talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's talking about something that happens in a moment that you know, that you feel, that that you recognize when it happens. Folks, both of those aspects of being filled with the Holy Spirit matter for us to be holy. It matters that we are full of the Holy Spirit and aware of his presence in us, but it also matters that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We have those moments that we're aware of his presence just as, the, as God's presence filled the whole, most holy place that God would fill our lives through his Spirit. And th- this is something that matters for us individually and it matters for us as a church. I absolutely want, and don't we want chapel to be a place that is consecrated to God and set apart for his purposes, and we're set apart from anything that is not what he has for us, so we can be set apart to all that he does have for us. So we reject any plan or agenda that's not from him. We reject reject anything that's wicked or impure or ungodly. We also can reject even good things if they're not God things for us. Because we want to be perfectly set apart to God and his purposes. And we want to be full and filled with the Holy Spirit. We're set apart to him. We know that he's with us. But don't we want God to come and fill our church with his Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it says that the Holy Spirit came and filled the house where they were. And then all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. He filled the place where they were, and then he filled each of them. Look, the church is not a place. It's not a building. It's the people of God. But when we gather together as God's people, the Holy Spirit filling us is going to mean filling the rooms where we gather. 
this place is a sanctuary, not just because that's what we call this room, but because that's what we want to be true of this room and us as a church, that we are a holy place filled with God's presence. So Holy Spirit, come and fill this room and fill every room where our kids and our youth meet and fill those spaces where our Bible studies gather and fill every home where connection groups gather and everywhere there's an expression of the gathered Chapel in the Pines church, come Holy Spirit and fill that place. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and that's what makes us holy. We're set apart to God and we're filled with God and so we are a holy place. We're a holy place and we're also a dwelling place. There in verse 8, God says, Have them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. You know, I love that God did not just visit his people, but he dwelled with them. He remained with them. He lived with them. He took up residence among them. He moved into their neighborhood and he stayed there. Of course, this whole idea of God dwelling with his people raises a question because we know that God is perfectly, amazingly, supremely holy, and we know that people are not holy. They're sinful. So how can this perfectly holy God live around and among sinful people? God had made his will very clear to the Israelites. He had told them what holiness looked like. He told them what was right and wrong. That's what the, those tablets of covenant law summarize, the Ten Commandments and all that, all that he had said to them. They, they were clear on what it was. They knew what his standards were, but they couldn't live up to those standards. They, they violated those standards. They sinned. And that's where the sacrificial system came in. That um, the people would come periodically. They would bring their animals to the, that altar in the courtyard to be sacrificed. And that would take care of their sin individually. But, you know, for the sin of the people as a whole to be covered and taken care of, that actually involved the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that the lid of the Ark was called the atonement cover. And once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place. It was the only time of the year that he went in there. But he would go in there and he would sprinkle blood on that atonement cover to cover his sins and the sins of the nation, of the people as a whole. That's what it took for the for the nation as a whole to be made right with God, for their sins to be covered, it took, it took that atoning sprinkling of the blood on the atonement cover. That reminds us that our sins have to be atoned for, for us to be right with God and be able to dwell with him and he with us. That's as true for us as it was for the people back who worshipped in the tabernacle. God has made his standards clear to us. He's revealed to us what's right and wrong. He shows us what it looks like to be holy He's even made us holy. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have, you have been made holy. But even though that's our identity, we don't always live up to that identity. We fall short, we sin, and our sins have to be atoned for. But our sins aren't atoned for by us coming and offering lambs to be sacrificed on an altar. They're not even atoned for by someone sprinkling blood on a solid gold lid of something. Our sins have been atoned for by the death of Jesus on the cross. His sacrificial once-for-all death for us. What we, just, what we just remembered in communion, that's how our sins can be atoned for. That's how we can be made right with God. The cover of the ark, the atonement cover, reminds us that that's necessary for God to be able to dwell with us. And then the cherubim that were on top of that cover 
remind us that God dwells with us specifically as our king. The cherubim are mentioned here, but they're not really described. All we know for sure is that they had wings. And the artist who did that 3D animation that we just saw, uh, he depicted them as basically human in form with big wings. But the other cultures that were around ancient Israel, when they portrayed cherubim, they did that as a creature that had the body of a lion or a bull that had wings and that had a human face. They looked like a winged sphinx. That's how cherubs were depicted in the other cultures around Israel. And in those other ancient Near Eastern culture, cherubim were associated with sacred spaces and with thrones. And in fact, later in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, we see cherubim mentioned specifically in connection with the throne of God. So the idea here is not just that God dwells between the wings of the cherubim in a special way, but that he is actually enthroned there. It's like the wings of the cherubim are the seat of the throne and the atonement cover is his footstool, that he's there as king. That's what the imagery of cherubim would have suggested to the Israelites. It's what we're meant to see as well. And in fact, uh, there's this phrase that God is enthroned on or between the wings of the cherubim that comes up six more times in the Old Testament. This is the image. God is with his people, dwelling with them as their king, as their king. I I want us to take another minute to think about kings, who they are and what they do. So again, I'm going to ask you to have this conversation. What sorts of things come to mind when you hear the word king? What do kings do? And which of those might be true of God as king? So turn to the people next to you and, uh, and, and talk about these questions for a minute. So, so God is the king of his people. He's enthroned there between the cherubim as king. And um, this meant that he protected his people. He fought battles for them. And for the people, it meant that they submitted to God. They obeyed him. That was their proper response to him as king. Do you know that God dwells as king with us? He is our king. Uh, and he's meant to be enthroned in our lives. And we could say enthroned in this church as the one who protects us and provides for us and the one to whom we submit and who we obey. Uh, That's our appropriate response. Our obedience does not make God king, like we're voting him into position, but our obedience is the appropriate response to the reality that he is king. You're either in rebellion against God's authority or you're submitted to his authority. And when we submit and obey, it positions us to receive all the benefits of his protection and provision and all the rest. So God is our king, and that's true of us individually And we want that to be true of us as a church, that we see God as the king who we submit to and who we obey, that we're perfectly aligned with his authority, that we go where he tells us to go and we do what he tells us to do, and we're always perfectly responsive and obedient to him as a church and as individuals. Because God is with us, we're a holy place, we're a dwelling place, and we are a meeting place. Uh, Look again at verse 22. There above, the ark, uh, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law, God said to Moses, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And if you've been reading along in the passages we've been referencing the last few weeks, uh, you've seen the tabernacle proper called the Tent of Meeting. 
That was such an important function of what happened there that it became a name for that place. This is where God met with Moses, where Moses met with God. Moses would talk to God for his own sake and on behalf of the people, and God would speak to Moses what the commandments that he wanted the people to obey. God, I love that God did not just visit his people, he dwelt with them, and he didn't just dwell with them as kind of there in a silent sense, but he actually spoke to them. He wanted to meet with them. God wants to meet with us. He wants to communicate with us. And the Ark of the Covenant reminds us of this in two ways. First of all, inside that Ark were the tablets of covenant law. As one scholar said, these tablets were the written record of what God had spoken, the revealed and historic word of God on which the covenant was founded. And we're meant to remember that there's a written record we have the revealed and historic word of God, that scripture. God has spoken to us through his word. And if you want to meet with God, if you want to hear him speak, if you want to be in his presence, but you're not spending time in scripture, you're neglecting one of the primary ways that God wants to make himself known in your life. You know, we don't want to uh, get in the place with God that maybe we've been with other people. Have you ever had someone ask you a question about something you've already written to them about? And you have to find a way to say politely, oh, did you see my email? Did that text come through okay? Or per my previous email, and then copy and paste if you're feeling a little spicy. But we don't want to get that way with God. We want to read what he's written so that we know what he's speaking to us. God speaks to us through his word, and he also wants to speak to us directly through his Holy Spirit. And again, the ark reminds us of that. Oh, I wanted to mention this. This is so important that we understand scripture that this is how we're going to start 2024 is with an emphasis on the Bible called Feast 40 Days in God's Word. We want to establish and deepen a habit of engaging with scripture. We're going to uh, under, learn how to understand and apply what we read. More coming on that, but that'll be something that's for kids, for youth, for us as adults. That's going to start 2024. God wants to speak to us uh, by his Holy Spirit. The ark reminds us of that. Inside the ark is the written record of what God has spoken, the revealed and historic word of God on which the covenant was founded. Above the ark is the living voice of the God who still speaks to instruct and guide his people through his servant Moses. God gave the covenant law to Moses. And if you've read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know there wasn't anything left out of that. It was thorough. It was comprehensive. And still, God wanted to speak to Moses. And wanted Moses to speak to him. God wants to speak to us. And when we say God speaks to us by his Holy Spirit, it's not because there's anything deficient or lacking from Scripture. It's because God is a relational revealing God. And it's part of what it means for him to be with us is that he speaks to us and wants us to speak to him. You might say, well, Tim, I mean, I get that he did this for Moses. But Moses was, you know, Moses. Like, does God really want to speak to me this way? Well, yeah, Moses did have this unique role in the history of God's people, and you may not see the visible, you know, glorious, audible presence of God like Moses did, but absolutely God wants to speak to you. This is a big part of the point of what uh, Peter got across when he quoted Joel on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. 
In this context, the big deal about being able to prophesy meant that you could receive revelation from God. You could hear him speak. And that is for all of us who are in relationship with God through Jesus because the Spirit has been poured out on us, because we've been filled with his Spirit, we can hear God speak to us. And this, we want this to be true for each of us. And don't we want this to be true for us as a church? Don't we want to be a place that when we leave here, we say we have encountered God. We have met with God. God has spoken to us. And I want that to happen through the preaching of Scripture as the Holy Spirit illumines our hearts and minds to, to hear what God wants to say to us through, through the Bible. That's why we spend a lot of time looking at Scripture when we're together. But I don't want to miss any way that God would want to speak to us. I want to hear God speak through the lyrics of a worship song that he drives into our hearts. I want to hear God speak in a quiet moment as he puts a, a thought, his word in our mind. I want to hear him speak through a word of encouragement or knowledge that might be given. I don't want to miss any way that God would speak. Because don't we, don't we want to go from this place, begin to say, if we have met with God and God has met with us, he spoke to us and we know that he heard us as we spoke to him with our praises and our prayers. God is moving and he is active. I love that that is a part of the legacy of Chapel in the Pines. The chapel has been a church where that is true. And I love the degree to which that is still true for us today. And I'm just praying in the days to come, oh Lord, may it be more the case. May it be more the case that we encounter you. May that be something we are known for and what sets us apart is that this is a place where we meet with you and we hear you speak. We encounter you. That's possibly because God is with us. Individually and corporately, we are tabernacles of God's presence, temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we're meant to be a holy place, set apart to him and filled with him. Is your life full of the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled with his presence? Is today a day to ask for a fresh filling? We're a dwelling place. God is with us. He doesn't just visit us, but he remains with us and he's with us as king. Are we living in obedience to him? There are any areas of your life that need to be brought back under his authority today. And we are that meeting place. God speaks to us by his word and by his spirit, and we speak to him as well. I want to just give you a moment to think about, uh, reflect on this, and think about how God might want you to respond. You just bow your heads for a moment of quiet reflection, and worship team, you can come, and we'll sing another song before we go. But just think about, these aspects of what's true of you because God is with you and just reflect if there's any of these that need to be more true in your life that need to be experientially more the case for you listen to the Lord on this and respond to him Lord we come to you each individually and also as a church family as your temple as we are gathered as your people today and we thank you that you are with us we believe that and we also pray, Lord, that you would fill us in fresh ways, that you would come into our lives and come even into this church in fresh and powerful ways. We want to be a holy place, Lord, set apart to you, yes, and filled with your presence. Lord, we want to be your dwelling place. You are our king. Lord, as a church, we say an unreserved yes to you. We come under your authority in every way. We want to be responsive and obedient to you. And we do want to be a place where we meet with you, where you meet with us, where we encounter you, 
We want, Lord, to hear you speak in every way that you're speaking to us. Don't let us miss it, God. May that be true of us, we pray in your name. Amen. You bless me, and I just say in the name of Jesus, I bless you with the presence of God in your life, with the voice of God speaking clearly to you, with joy as you go from this place. Chapel family, we're blessed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. amen.